you can do it. Everybody I know that ever steps out on faith never believes they can do it. Um, that's why the Holy Spirit is so crucial to tell you that this is what you need to do. And uh, once you know that that is your calling, I'm just going to tell you that life is never the same once you act within the calling for which God has given you. So thank you all for sharing that. We'll have some, some more next week, and we want to kind of send them off next week as well, pray for their family as they're doing that. So here's what I want to do. Um, I've got a really short amount of time. This will be the shortest sermon I've probably ever preached, but I can do it because the story is a short one. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, Wayne. Here, here's why I want to share this story. It's because I've been sharing this story uh, since I started ministry, um, which has been about 25 years ago. So I started sharing this when we were in camping ministry, and we would talk with kids about what does it look like to follow Christ. And, uh, and it's just kind of stuck with me. And the reason I love it so much is because it is me. I mean, this story is it's not really me, but uh, it could be me. It's a story about somebody you're very familiar with. That's about Peter. Peter is one of the mess, most messed up disciples of any of the disciples. Does anybody else ever relate to the messed up people? All right, good. So I'm not the only one. Um, the rest of you, you could relate. You just won't admit it. But uh, so if, you're, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14. And I'm going to kind of jump through some things. You can go back and read this later because I want you to understand the story um, or the kind of the background of what's leading up to this moment. Biblical blunders is an important study because it reminds us that without God's grace, we don't function. Uh, it's an important story because it reminds us that there was one perfect person, not seven billion. And it reminds us that when we fail, a culture will tell you you're done. And God says, I'm just now getting you ready for the real deal. So... Biblical Blunders is a series not for us to let ourselves off the hook. In many ways, it's to propel us to look at our failures and our mistakes. And it's going to propel us for new ways that God wants to work in our lives. The story I'm going to share with you is a common story. It's the story where Jesus is walking out on the water and Peter sees him. And Peter says, hey, I can do this too. Tell me to come out there and walk to you and I'll do it. So you're familiar with the story, right? He walks out and then he begins to sink. Now, the reason that it's important to understand scripture in context is because context tells us what's going on in the story that we're not reading. Have you ever walked in on a conversation and you walked in in a very inopportune time? Or had somebody else walk in on a conversation at a very inopportune time. And they don't really know the whole story of what's happening. But by walking in in this moment, it was a very awkward moment to walk in the story. Many people end up reading scripture by walking in at inopportune times. And they make wild assumptions about what God is saying without looking at all the other circumstances happening around scripture. That's why context is important. That's why when you study scripture, it's important. If you want to narrow down to a couple of verses, fine. But you need to understand what's happening before and after. Some of you have, have undergone some studies of scripture in a... In, let me see if I can talk here. In a chronological way. The scriptures are not given to us in a Bible that you buy in a bookstore in a chronological manner. There's a lot of things out of order in scripture. They are grouped by... 
types of language, types of literature, and they're not grouped by this happened first, and then this, and then this, and then this. So there are lots of places in Scripture that are actually places in Revelation that point to history before Genesis. I mean, it's really incredible when you begin to piece together what it looks like. That's the power of context through Scripture. Now, I'm, and rather than reading that, I plan to read this to you. I don't really need to read it. And instead of doing that, let me lead you through what's happening to this exchange with Peter. We might let him off the hook a little bit, and we might see a little of ourselves in Peter's life as well. If you start in Matthew chapter 14 with verse 1, you're going to read about the murder of John the Baptist. Now, if you've been following the story of Jesus, you know that Jesus and John the Baptist were both born about the same time, both miraculous announcement by angels, and John the Baptist was preparing the way for which Jesus would eventually kind of take over. Some of John the Baptist's disciples joined Jesus, and John said, go, this is the one we've been talking about, go with him. And they began following Jesus, and uh, we what we learn about John the Baptist is that he was going to lose his head at the request of a woman who didn't like his message. And so he began to teach what these people who are ruling are doing is wrong and the relationships they have are wrong and it shouldn't happen. And so the woman he was speaking of who was in power ended up getting her daughter to convince the ruler to have him killed. So this is the beginning of a series of events leading up to this time of Peter walking on the water. Jesus has discovered that this has happened. And now they are trying to get away to process that this great friend, this great comrade, this great colleague, and beginning to usher in a new age for the world has been killed for something stupid. So that's kind of the backdrop of what's happening here. As they get away, Jesus is doing what he often does, and that is he gets away to pray. I'm going to pick up, um, all right, Matthew 14, verse 13. If you're looking there, this is, I'm not going to read this. This is a a, a part of the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Anybody familiar with the story? I'm not going to read it then. The feeding of the 5,000 happens as Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away. And they're trying to process what's happening with John. And Jesus is doing what he does when things get rough. What do you think that is? He prays. There are two characters. Let's pick up right there. You're in the right place, Wayne. You caught up to me. Two Two consistent characteristics of Jesus. One is that Jesus regularly got alone to pray. No doubt Jesus was sad. He was mourning. There there were significant supernatural uh, consequences for what was happening here. And he wanted to get away and he couldn't. Have you ever had a time going through deep mourning when you just needed some time to yourself? But you're at work and you can't get away. You have people over at the house. You can't get away. You have other people that have other bad things going on in their lives. And you can't process what you need to process on your own. And instead, you have multitudes of people. Maybe not 5,000. It may be five. It may be you have kids and you have two and they're demanding your attention. Or one. It doesn't matter. You have people that do not allow you to get away and do what you need to do, and that is to deal with some very hard things in your life. 
That's the situation for Jesus and the disciples. That's what they're going through. Now, if you're a disciple, you're thinking, okay, this has happened to John. This could happen to us. I mean, this could be our fate, which we'll read later in the story. It is for many of the disciples. This is the same fate that they are going to have at some point in their lives. And so they're processing all of this. Now, I want you to imagine at that time they come and, and they're getting away. And all of a sudden people hear that Jesus and the disciples are out here. And they start coming a few at a time and more. And then there's a thousand. And then there's two thousand. And then there's five thousand. And if you go and read some of the historical accounts, it is estimated that there were five thousand men. But once you begin to factor in the women and children, up to maybe twelve to fifteen thousand people would have been there surrounding Jesus and the disciples as they mourned the death of their friend, their brother. This is the this is the backdrop for the story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. You know, when we read those stories, we always read them based on the fact that they are going to be isolated incidences. They're out for a picnic, right? Let's go out for a picnic at the lake. And then Jesus and Peter are going to walk on the water. That's how we read these when we don't go into context. We don't look at what's happening emotionally with them. We don't look at the activities and the environment that's happening around them. We we read the story of the 5,000, and they're just typically in our mind just walking around, and 5,000 people show up, and then they decide to do this miracle, and boom, we're on to the next story. But that is not how life works. It's not how life worked for them. It's not how life works for you. There are times that we can, and Facebook is a great example, we can take a few pictures of an event and post it and give an idea of what our day is like. But because we haven't shared what happened before and after, maybe the day looks great and yet it ended up being at the end of the day a horrible day. Because people only see what happened at those, those one event at a time. We have to do the same thing as we read Scripture. We have to do the same thing as we look at these stories. And when we look at incidences like Peter walking on water, we have to understand what's happening around the entire event. A couple of things we see is with Jesus feeding the 5,000 or the 12,000 or the 15,000 or however many there were, was one, Jesus regularly got alone to pray. If you're going through something difficult in life and this is not your first activity, it's time to change your pattern. Jesus, the Son of God, as we read through Scripture, created the entire world at the request of His Father and regularly needed to get alone to pray. And one of the most uh, seldom seen activities among Christians, it seems today, is that of prayer. Which is amazing to me because what we find over and over again is that prayer is the lifeline for the follower of Jesus. It's the way we survive the world. It's the way we know what God wants us to do or a decision to make. It's the way we feel peace when everything feels like it's falling apart. Prayer is so huge and Jesus regularly got alone to pray. The second one is, is that no matter what was happening and no matter how hard things were, Jesus was always concerned for those who were seeking him. There are times that a mature individual recognizes that even when they need time for themselves, 
When others are in need, they're willing to sacrifice for those who are in need. And the reason I say a mature individual is because an immature individual will never look after the needs of others. They'll never see beyond their own needs. A mature individual looks around and says they need something. I need something. I could push my needs to the side to help them. That's ministry. That's testimony. That's living life following Jesus. There's a level of maturity that must be reached in which we begin to say, not my needs, but yours. If you're thinking, Mark, I don't know about that. It's where we read consistently teachings in Scripture that say, pick up your cross and follow Christ. It's where we read that if somebody slaps us on one side of the face, we've got to turn the other, let them do that. It's where we read if somebody is mean to us and demands something from us, not only do we give them what they want, we go the extra mile. It's the idea that we, because we know Christ, no longer operate based on what do I need out of life and what do I need out of the world. It's what can we do for the world because of Christ. So we see that, that constant calling to transcend what is natural, to look after yourselves and say, how can I help someone else? Whether that be to go to Turkey, whether that be to minister to someone in Chattanooga, whether that be to reach out into family members that you know don't know Christ, how can I sacrifice to help meet the needs of others? Something that we see over and over again that not only Jesus says, but he instructs his disciples to do. Those two consistent characteristics of Jesus we see over and over again. He was concerned for those that were seeking him. So he stopped and he took care of them. Many people at this time, they're continuing to see the miraculous works of Jesus. The disciples are seeing them. They're seeing them. And the truth is, is that when they begin to see what Jesus is capable of, we get a number of different responses to what Jesus is able to do. Some were inspired to follow, just as today. Some were afraid, just as today. Some were indifferent. A lot of people today are just indifferent to what God has done. And the truth is, some wanted him stopped because he was a threat, political threat. And they wanted him stopped, which is what's happening today. These things that happened then are still happening. This is the environment in which they're living. These are the truths that they're processing. As we look at the story of Peter, the truth is Peter is a character of many blunders. But God chose Peter, or Jesus chose Peter just like God chose Mary that we talked about last week. Knowing what Peter would do, he was still chosen. So my question as we launch into this part of the story is this. Have you made a mistake that you feel is so great that has disqualified you from a calling that God may have on your life? Have you made a mistake that's so big that you feel you're done and you just need to survive because God can't use you based on your mistake? Do you feel you chose a career path and by being on this career path, you will never be able to serve God effectively? Or that you had a relationship that because of that relationship, God will never be able to use you like someone else who had not chosen that relationship? Do you have those stories in your life? Some of you may, some of you may not. Some of you may just be enduring these next few minutes because you feel like you've done everything right. All I can say is, hold on, your time is coming. 
for everyone else, there's going to be a constant feel that because of my mistakes, I'm done. Let me read Matthew 14, beginning with verse 22. This is the story. It says, immediately, he, Jesus, this is following the beheading of Jesus, following the feeding of the 5,000. They're trying to get away and process. They can't do it. So immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Estimates are the other side was about four miles away. While he dismissed the crowd. So he, I'm going to deal with these people. You guys get away and you need to pray and you need to, you need to deal with what, what, what's happening right now. You guys just go. I'll take care of them. You all go on. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to what? What does he do? Pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land or guessing two to three miles away beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is generally somewhere between three and six in the morning, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, which I I just got to wonder, why didn't he take a boat? Other than he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, last week we talked about Jesus going to the temple instead of staying with the family community unit. I just wonder, was that not intentional? Jesus even responded to Mary saying, why would you think I would be anywhere other than my father's house? And yet Mary's going nuts trying to look for Jesus, her son in which she has lost him. And here he is and he's saying, hey, where else would I be? See, many times God orchestrates the events that lead to your failure. Something in you will reject that logic, but it does not make it untrue. Many times God orchestrates the events that lead to your failure. And the reason that we reject that idea is because we believe that what God ultimately wants for us is to never fail. And if we truly believe that what God wants for us is that we never fail, we will always approach God from a place of guilt and shame and disappointment. And many people live their lives following Christ, living out of those emotions. Is that really what God wants for us? Does God really trust us that much that we can live life without failure? Is it really possible that you can make all the right decisions, all the right moves, all the right choices? Is it possible to do that? Not according to Scripture. Scripture is very clear. You're doomed. Isn't that great? Feels good. You will make the mistake. Given the opportunity to make the mistake, guess what? You will do it. And when we begin to understand that the presentation of the gospel is for a doomed people who will always make the mistake, we begin to change the way we view how God works among us. So if you're of the, of the opinion that God expects you to not make mistakes, you are going to have to do a lot of work covering up Scripture to be able to fully endorse that belief. Because Scripture will not bear that out. So Jesus comes walking out. I have to believe it's on purpose. I have to believe he knows what he's doing. He knows what's coming. It could have been utilitarian. They took all the boats. All right, here we go. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what, it, I'm not Jesus. I don't know what it went through his mind. 
But he comes walking through. I, I, I do, because I do really love the understanding the full humanity of Jesus, I do imagine that he's going through the storm. He slides down a wave or two. I don't know that that happened. But if I was walking on water in a storm, I mean, it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, we have some good times. So he walks out to them. But when the disciples saw him, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, this is not the only place that we read about this story. In fact, in other places in the story, if we were really to, to look at the language used to describe the story, it talks about they, the fact of not just being beaten by the waves, they were tormented at sea. It was the exact same language to talk about severe demonic oppression. And so this thing that they're going through is not just a fisherman's storm. They are feeling oppressed and tortured and tormented like things are about to all go bad. John has been killed. The enemy is alive around us. We're going down with a ship. They're wiping us out. And now some guy is walking on water. And we think, why did they not know it was Jesus? Because as far as we know, Jesus has never walked on water. This is a new event for them. It's not a new event for you. You've been reading about it, some of you, since you were kids. For them, all new event. Who? What? Huh? And they were filled with fear. But immediately, because Jesus doesn't want you living in a state of fear. Immediately, Jesus knows what's going on. And he spoke to them saying, take heart or don't be afraid. It is I. Peter answered him, big old stubborn Peter, who always takes it too far or never far enough. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Now, this is where Peter's like, <laughs> looking around. If the story stopped here, Peter's good. I mean, he has solidified his place as the leader of the disciples. I mean, they've never seen anybody walk on water. And now Peter has walked on water. You know, it's amazing. When you and I build some confidence, how quickly that confidence can be eroded. Especially in your walk with Christ. We started journey eight years ago. Some people accused me of being a cocky church planner. I immediately removed them from my life because I didn't need that negativity in my life. And yet the years bared out that while I did never, never saw that pride in my life, there was something God had to work with through that. Uh, my confidence moving in was never, I didn't think about me, but maybe sometimes I felt it was. My confidence was in the things that God was doing around me. And then God stopped doing some of those things. And while I had seen miraculous things happening in my life and our family and our city and around the world, while I had seen these miraculous workings of God, prayer time with him was so great and gracious. It was just a wonderful time of this is real. This is a lie. This is, this is what living is. There were also times where God seemed to pull back and things felt, felt very lonely. And whether it's in church planning or whether it's in different points of my life, I can relate to Peter because there are times that I felt like I was walking on water and then times I looked around and started to question everything. 
Verse 29 said, he said, come. Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. He came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, if we look at this story, there are a lot of things that we can look at. And here's what I want you to process as you leave here today. Jesus sent the disciples away on purpose. There are times I feel that God has sent me away on purpose when I didn't want to leave. I want to be right there. And he said, Mark, it's time for you to go do something. And he sends us away. The reason we don't like to be sent away is because we want to be where our confidence is. And at the time that he says, I want you to step out of your confidence and I want you to move into something that you don't feel confident about. Then we get nervous and we want to stay with him. He sent him away for a number of different reasons. He sent him away because the crowd appears as we read. If you read the story in John chapter 6, the, the crowd begins to press in and say, this is the Messiah. This is the prophet. And he wasn't ready for that kind of move yet. And so it was time to wrap things up and he sent them away. You'll read that in John 16 verses 14 through 15. He sent them away because perhaps he knew they needed time to mourn and, and to process. And he sent them away because he wanted to pray. Where is prayer in your life? It's a part of your life? Regularly, I find that prayer is the most important thing that I can do in my faith. Certainly, reading scripture is important to be able to add that dynamic and understand what he's saying and, and be able to have more material to, to think through and to, to deal with and to align my life with. But prayer is perhaps the most because this is when you are truly connected with God. Prayer is a regular part of Jesus' life. We see him regularly praying for direction. We see him praying while he's mourning. We see him praying for wisdom. We see him praying, making decisions. We even see him praying, wrestling with God. If you're someone who wrestles with God in prayer, so did Jesus. Though ultimately Jesus said, your will, not mine, be done. That's where we have to be as well. The single most powerful action you as a follower can exercise is prayer. I have found that prayer just, it just centers me. I'm just centered in prayer. And there's lots of places to go, lots of ways to, to move and, and lots of uncertainty, lack of confidence. I just find that prayer offers that kind of foundation. When I'm upset or when I'm sad or when something's going really bad, I find that prayer just brings me back to a place of trust. I just find it is maybe the most important thing we can take out of many of these stories that we have. I found that prayer brings a supernatural peace in the midst of difficulty. I found that it allows me to clarify my thoughts, clarify my actions, clarify my feelings as I speak to God about what's going on in me. It is that ability to communicate to him and put them into words or thoughts that it helps me understand what's really happening rather than just being 
thrown around by emotions, rampant emotions. And I find that my world, this is where it becomes so important for me, my world can again be aligned with the power and the movement of God when I go to him in prayer. Because when I fail to pray, my world begins to spiral in all these different directions, but prayer helps center it back on his power and his direction. So we see that Jesus chooses to take a miraculous shortcut. Was it on purpose? Probably. You see, Peter recognizing what's happening. He sees another miracle. What I love about Peter is how much he's in. I see Jesus doing something. I want to be a part of that. I see he's at work. I want to be a part of that. I see this incredible, wonderful thing. And Jesus, I'm going to be there right with you. But what we see is that not only did he experience it, he then doubted. That's why I love Peter. That's why I see myself in him. I've experienced so much and yet still I doubt. And when he doubted, he sank. Some of you feel like you're sinking or you have sunk. Why is it? Just a question for you to process. I don't have an answer. Why? is it that we doubt when we have experienced Jesus? The power of a Savior to change us. Yet, when we experience that, we doubt. The truth is, rather than worrying about should we or should we not doubt, what we find in Peter is a prescription for how we deal with those difficult times in our life. Knowing what to do when you're in doubt sometimes the most faithful thing you can do what do you do when you doubt we also find is that in spite of peter's failure jesus was consistently willing to restore him as he is you i wonder inwardly did jesus expect peter to fail did jesus want peter to fail because he had a bigger lesson for him to learn you will learn some of your most powerful lessons through failure not through success if you run from failure you run from the opportunity to grow into something more than you are right now and if you view failure as always a negative thing you will never be able to do what god wanted to do with peter and that was prepare him to lead the church but he had to fail first. Not just here. He had to fail later. If you'll remember, Peter is a man of many failures. Jesus even called him out here in front of all the other disciples. Here Peter's saying, just like here, I want to come out and walk with you on the water. Later, Jesus is saying, it's now my time to go. I'm going to be crucified. But I'll be there right there with you, Jesus. Wherever you are, I'm going to be with you. And he says, no, you can. In fact, not only can you not be with me, you won't even want to be even associated with me before this day's over. And that bears out. And yet Peter still becomes the leader of the church that Jesus is founding. If you run from failure, you're running from growth. If you live in failure, you're refusing growth. And if you believe your mistakes have defined your future, then you have given a power that God never gave it. He's given you the opportunity to grow. There's an old saying, you can only learn to make good decisions by making many, many bad ones. And it is true. My life is a testament to this. 
any of you that have lived any of any life, you know that, that you, that's true yourselves. The reason that we begin to focus on our failures as something that now makes us completely unusable to God is legalism. Legalism is the enemy that tries to convince you that your failures are your identity. Not grace, legalism. And I believe that Jesus allows you to fail so you can become the person he wants you to become. There are two perspectives you can take on failure. One is I have failed and therefore I am unworthy. Or I have failed and now I know how to succeed. You have to choose which direction you'll go. If you have failed, you have to choose to succeed next time. If you've made a mistake, you have to choose to learn from that failure, from that mistake, so that you can do it better next time. And when someone you care about is about to make the same mistake, you're there to help them give counsel so that while they'll have many other mistakes in their life, maybe you can help them through this one by learning from your mistakes. But what am I going to leave you with today? It is simply this. Your failure is the invitation for future success, not an identity that you'll never be able to shake. That's the value of the biblical blunders. To know that you, from this point forward, can make a choice to let God use you, a wiser, smarter, more faith-filled you, than believing that you're all washed up. Because that's never how Jesus saw it. For some of you today, you're thinking, man, you don't know what my failures are. All I can tell you is this. When Peter began to sink, he just cried out for, for, for Jesus to save him, and Jesus was there. Maybe you need to cry out for Jesus in the midst of your failure to say, what, what, where, where do I need to go from here? What do I need to do from here? And immediately, Jesus will be there. That is the value of knowing him and walking with him every day. All right, that's a quick story. It's an important story. What will you do with your mistakes and your failures? One of the things we talked about in our small group this past week is if you will embrace this for yourselves, the inevitable result is you will have to change the way you view the failures of others as well. The judgment we put on them by saying, you look what they did. I would never do that. Oh, man, you're in trouble when you say that. When we begin to understand failures differently, we begin to grow and allow other people to grow as well. Pray with me. Father. God, I pray that as we continue to move through this world, as we continue to live our lives that are so similar to Peter's, that we have any number of things that are, are causing us to mourn or be distracted. We're in a, in a world that is swirling and it's busy and we hardly have time to think, much less deal with the hardships that are happening all around us. We have some in here that are struggling with, uh, with health or health of people that they love, people that are struggling with work and what's happening there. We have people struggling with their families and there just seems to be something not right and they don't know what to do. There's all these different emotions going on, all these different attempts to make things right that seem to not be working. And all along you have wanted us to learn that you take broken people and you make them into strong, whole followers of you. 
I pray that for those that are struggling here this morning, that they will be able to do just that. Father, help us to see our failures not as something that don't, they don't matter. Not to see our failures as something that has to define us. But instead, we say our failures is an opportunity to grow. Let us grow and lead others to do the same. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.